0: Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. I'm Michael Hoffman, and today we're bringing you one of the hottest subjects on the historical horizon. Before we escort you on this untrammeled adventure in the advancement of knowledge, We ask you to patronize our bookstore at www.revisionisthistory.org. I am a professional historian. I've written several books. They're for sale at the website. And I've also recorded talks, which are also for sale, as well as newsletters we have written. The sale of my work allows me the privilege of continuing to write and research, so please visit www.revisionisthistory.org and keep us working for truth in history. Today, we're investigating tyranny, genocide, and slavery in the third world before the coming of the white man. Before Columbus. Those words open a door to a world that remains steeped in mystery. What is certain is that the record revisionists have managed to cobble together undercuts virtually every myth about Christopher Columbus having conquered paradise. From the point of view of most everything except the Creator's verdant oceans, jungles, plants, and animals, Columbus conquered hell on earth. This notion that the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere had organized their societies into something approaching utopia, and that the arrival of the white man introduced the tyranny, genocide, and slavery which cruelly and viciously crushed that heaven on earth, is one of the more ignorant and phantasmagorical articles of faith of academia's teaching stupid profession. The granddaddy of the post-lapsarian state of innocence legend is Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Discourse on the Origin and the Foundation of Inequality Among Mankind, published in 1754. 237 years later, in 1991, Kirkpatrick Sale applied the myth almost exclusively to people of color in his book Conquest of Paradise, Christopher Columbus, and the Columbian Legacy. As did Robert Thurston in his 1992 novel 1492, The Conquest of Paradise, which became an A-list Hollywood movie. The crude simplifications in books and movies such as these have become the foundation of contemporary axioms which brook no dissent. René Girard offers a corrective, and we quote, What I'm saying is that even if the current state of the world isn't reassuring, even if human beings are doing their best to transform the Christian promise into a nightmare, the nostalgia for the archaic and the pagan that our world feels so strongly, appears to me to be based on a frightening illusion. Think of the 20,000 victims that Aztec priests sacrificed every year. Their cities, though they may have been beautiful, were awash in innocent blood. In this 500th anniversary of Columbus's journey, it's considered good form to forget about these horrors. If you declare the Aztecs innocent, then grant the same thing to Columbus. And if you're going to judge, condemn the crimes of both camps and acknowledge that the Europeans put an end to unspeakable rituals." End quote from the book, When These Things Begin, published by Michigan State University in 2014, page 62. Our study is mainly focused on the pre-Columbian Western Hemisphere. There is, of course, a surfeit of crimes and outrages committed in 2022, Hollywood movies set in India, for example, the recent PBS series Around the World in 80 Days, typically portray Hindu society as compassionate. Usually, the only discordant note is sown by the resident whites. The truth is different, and while we recognize nobility and wisdom in Hindu culture, whether in Mexico or India, it's open season on poor and working-class women of color who are viciously tyrannized, tortured, and killed with impunity. Uttar Pradesh is a province in India where lower caste people are severely oppressed, sometimes to the point of starvation and murder. Quote, The poverty isn't an accident, as the economist Jean Dres has noted. It is a man-made starvation. Farmers work on land they do not own and have no rights. Labor contracts are relentless and demeaning. The market and the caste system keep more than half the population of Uttar Pradesh in a state of dire need. According to the National Crime Records Bureau, 12,361 missing persons reports were filed in Uttar Pradesh in 2014. A significant number of these disappearances were honor killings, murders exacted according to the rules of caste, families severely punished their children for forming relationships or even friendships outside their caste. Village life in Uttar Pradesh, as well as in the neighboring states of Haryana and Rajasthan, is often governed by a Kup Panchat, an extrajudicial community court of upper- and middle-class landowners which settles matters of social welfare, property rights, and marriage. Caste endogamy, that is arranged marriages, ensures that property stays within the community. Love marriages based on romance pose a threat to the Pachat's existence because they undermine the caste system. Intercaste relationships are a powerful challenge to centuries of segregation. Uttar Pradesh has a new governor, Yogi Adhanath, who was nominated by Prime Minister Modi's ruling party, the BJP, despite unresolved criminal charges of murder and inciting violence against him. In September 2020, a teenage Dalit, that is, a member of the untouchable caste, a teenage Dalit girl was assaulted for entering the land of an upper caste family in Hathras in Uttar Pradesh. A group of men broke her spine. She died from her injuries two weeks later. The local police removed her body at night and cremated it without her family's consent. In August 2021, a nine-year-old Dalit girl was gang-raped and murdered in southwest New Delhi. The priest persuaded the mother to let him cremate the girl's body at once before the police arrived. It later turned out that he had been one of the attackers. In the seven years since the incident, the seven years of Modi's reign, unimaginable brutality has been unleashed on India's lower caste population. An estimated 99% of sexual violence cases are not reported. In Indian states such as Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, and Jharkhand, less than 0.5% of incidents of violence against women are reported. Of the tiny proportion of crimes against women that are recorded by the police, only a fraction make it into the news. Those that don't can disappear. End quote from the London Review of Books, March 10, 2022, pages 13 through 14. We can cite hundreds of crime waves against women across the non-Christian world in the 21st century, about which Americans know next to nothing because their media insist on painting white people as congenital moral lepers whose alleged evil is without precedent in the history of the world. Accounts of the status of contemporary women in Hindu India's caste system would subvert that racist stereotype. Our study in this broadcast includes only accounts of third world history before white people were present. Were we to dwell on the horrors in modern India and Mexico, detractors would respond by saying that these evils are holdovers from when the white man colonized India, or Mexico. Their fallback position is always to a pre-white history that is depicted as idyllic. To build a strong case, therefore, from history, our study is limited to those historical epochs, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, that arose prior to the 16th century, in which the hackneyed alibi, the white man made me do it, is unsustainable. The civilization haters obfuscate the fact that, however flawed, Precious respect for the rights of the individual was incubated in England, Scotland, Ireland and blossomed in Christian colonial and later Republican America, powered by a people deeply imbued with biblical values related in particular to human beings as bearers of the image of their divine creator, whose rights were derived from him, not men. In contrast, the level of slavish idolatry accorded to pagan rulers in the Americas before Columbus is downright nauseating, for instance, among the Natchez tribe of Louisiana. Their monarch was known as the Natchez Sun. He appeared to wield unlimited power. His every movement was greeted by elaborate rituals of deference, bowing, and scraping. He could order arbitrary executions, help himself to any of his subjects' possessions, and do pretty much anything he liked. That's from David Graeber and David Wingrove's important book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, published in 2021, page 156. The same was true in the Florida Keys before Columbus among the Calusa natives. Slavery, genocide, and dictatorship was perpetrated by their leaders. If we had to characterize Native American nations prior to 1492, we would describe the majority of them as war-oriented butchers intent on slave-catching expeditions against other tribes. The principal objective of their relentless raids was the abduction and abject bondage of fellow natives in rival tribes. In the relentless pursuit of their hate-whitey narrative, media and academia gloss over this Holocaust. Among aboriginal societies on the northwest coast, quote, from the Klamath River northwards, there existed societies dominated by warrior aristocracies engaged in frequent intergroup raiding and in which traditionally a significant portion of the population had consisted of chattel slaves. This apparently had been true as long as anyone living there could remember. Throughout the entire region, a 1,500-mile strip of land from the Copper River Delta to Cape Mendocino, intergroup raiding for slaves was endemic and had been for as long as anyone could recall. In all those societies of the northwest coast, nobles alone enjoyed the ritual prerogative to engage with guardian spirits who conferred access to aristocratic titles and the right to keep the slaves captured in raids. Slaves on the Northwest coast were hewers of wood and drawers of water, but they were especially involved in the mass harvesting, cleaning, and processing of salmon and other Andromeda's fish. Quoting now from Graeber and Wingrau, the first European accounts of the region in the late 18th century speak of slaves. These accounts suggest that perhaps a quarter of the indigenous Northwest coast population lived in bondage which is about the equivalent to proportions found in the Roman Empire, or classical Athens, or indeed the cotton plantations of the American South. What's more, Indian slavery on the northwest coast was a hereditary status. If you were a slave, your children were also fated to be so. Current archaeological and ethno-historical research suggests that the institution of slavery goes back a very long way indeed on the northwest coast many centuries before European ships began docking at Nootka Sound to trade in otter pelts and blankets. On the northwest coast, we can observe how many of the elements that later came together in the institution of slavery emerged at roughly the same time, starting around 1850 BC in what's called the Middle Pacific Period. This is when we first observed the bulk harvesting of Androma's fish An incredibly bounteous resource. Later travelers recounted salmon runs so massive one could not see the water for the fish, but one that involved a dramatic intensification of labor demands. Now let's look at the Amazonian region. Graeber and Wengro, in their important book, The Dawn of Everything A New History of Humanity, report In northwest Amazonia, the dominant peoples were sedentary horticulturalists and fishermen living along the largest rivers, who raided the nomadic hunting-gathering bands of the hinterland. By contrast, in the Paraguay River Basin, it was semi-itinerant hunter-gatherers who raided or subjugated village agriculturalists. In southern Florida, the hegemonic groups, Calusa in this case, were fishermen-gatherers who lived in large, permanent villages but moved seasonally to fishing and gathering sites, raiding both fishing and farming communities. Classifying these groups according to how much they farmed, fished, or hunted tells us little of their actual histories. What really mattered in terms of the ebb and flow of power and resources was their use of organized violence to feed off other populations. Sometimes the foraging peoples, such as the Guacuru of the Paraguay palm savanna, or the Calusa of the Florida Keys had the upper hand militarily over their agricultural neighbors. In such cases, taking slaves and exacting tribute exempted a portion of the dominant society from basic subsistence chores and supported the existence of leisured elites. It also supported the training of specialized warrior castes, which in turn created the means for further appropriation and further tribute. Raiders almost invariably insisted that slaves were captured for their life force, or vitality, vitality which was consumed by the conquering group. Captives could sometimes be kept suspended in social death as part of a permanent pool of victims awaiting their actual physical death. Typically, they would be killed at collective feasts akin to the northwest coast potlatch, presided over by ritual torture specialists, and this would sometimes result in the eating of enemy flesh." End quote from Graeber and Wengrau, pages 176 to 177, 182, 186, and 188 through 189. Lo and behold, many centuries before European ships began docking, perhaps a quarter of the indigenous Northwest coast population that is, contemporary Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, lived in bondage. I repeat that. Many centuries before European ships began docking, perhaps a quarter of the indigenous Northwest Coast population lived in bondage. Columbus had nothing to do with that. There were no white people here when that occurred. That bondage is equivalent to proportions found in the Roman Empire, classical Athens, or indeed the cotton plantations of the American South. So where is the special perfidy that woke leftist extremists attempt to fix as an indelible moral stain on whites alone? The documentary record teaches that the slave horrors that transpired in the antebellum South were also perpetrated by Native American tribes centuries earlier and on a similar magnitude throughout the Western Hemisphere. Slavery is an almost universal characteristic of pagan societies, which was then perversely adopted by Southern Christendom under the special circumstance of the influence of the directives of the Talmud of Babylon and Mamamides' permission for oppressing black people. These facts are not put forth as any type of justification for the colonialism or white racism that came later. These are suppressed truths, and they recommend themselves to us on that basis alone, because the facts speak for themselves. Truth should be embraced for its own sake. Yes, the so-called Christian West betrayed the gospel in the centuries when it colonized and subjugated people of color in third world nations. It does not matter whether this occurred during the medieval papal crusades or the 18th century era of Dutch and English Protestant colonies in Asia. When Christians assume superiority over another soul and the right to take their labor, their land, and resources, They are no longer Christians. They have desacralized the Christian nation. Christian philosopher René Girard, who we heard from at the top of the broadcast, grasped this fact, and at the same time he rejected the woke absurdity of rendering pagan societies superior in virtue to civilizations where Jesus actually is king. Quoting now, Desacralization has been accompanied by de Christianization, by a loss of the humilitas of the early Christians, and Westerners have fallen prey to a cultural vanity that they are now more conscious of, but from which they're having trouble extricating themselves. For some time, the West took itself for a masterpiece of nature of which it was itself the author. Our era is right to react against this. But it immediately goes then to the opposite extreme, as always happens in such cases. For the last 30 years, we've made it our duty to regard ourselves as the most monstrous creatures in all of history. The common denominator of all of these excesses is the desire to minimize and even to condemn the religious and cultural forces to which we owe the relative cultural superiority that we are misusing. Those are profound words they bear repeating. And they're from the book we quoted earlier in connection with Girard, and that is page 63. By the way, René Girard's last name is, pronounced, is spelled G-I-R-A-R-D. The true Christian is seldom tempted to go marching for the subjugation of people of color on the part of the East India Company or Teddy Roosevelt or Harry Truman, LBJ, Bill Clinton, or George W. Bush. Their crusades in Vietnam, Serbia, Iraq, and Afghanistan have no attraction for the true Christian. The evil in the third world that we have been recounting is not racial. It is religious. People of color have been its victims, whether India, Mexico, North America, Central America, or South America which is our purview today. Contemporary evangelical Republican Christianity is in many cases, with some honorable exceptions, a continuation of the imperial churchianity of 1900 when, as related by John T. Flynn in his book As We Go Marching, published in 1944, and we're quoting from pages 217 and 219, U.S. Senator Albert Beveridge stated, quote, The Philippines are ours forever, and just beyond the Philippines are China's illimitable markets. We will not renounce our part in the mission of our trustee under God of the civilization of the world. The question is elemental. It is racial. God has not been preparing the English-speaking and Teutonic people for 1,000 years for nothing but vain and idle speculation and self-administration. No! He has made us the master organizers of this world. He has given us the spirit of progress and all of our race he has marked the American people as the chosen nation to finally lead in the regeneration of the world. This is the divine mission of America. We are the trustees of the world's progress, guardians of its righteous peace. End quote from Senator Albert Beveridge as quoted by John T. Flynn in his wonderful book, As We Go Marching. Well, Senator Beveridge's great commission was financial, plundering the people of color of the world for the sake of usury and the market economy. But actually, it's not a market economy. It's a monopoly economy. This is the gospel of prosperity, not of Jesus. It succumbs to that temptation by which the devil took America's leadership unto the exceeding high mountain, and showed them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said, All these will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. This is what the huge and misnamed contemporary evangelical Christian movement, with some honorable exceptions, as noted, is undertaking in handing Palestine to the diabolic Zionism and Talmudism in the name of Jesus Christ crucified. Let me give you the authentic biblical mandate free of the money power and counterfeit Israel's Avodah Zarah. Jesus gave us the key to life and salvation, which, if lived collectively as the expression of the commonweal of a nation, places the Jesus people of that nation who have received that grace in the luminous position of being the plants that the Creator himself plants on earth and consequently exemplars and benevolent guides for humanity. In the face of this hypocrisy and betrayal of the Jesus mission, diabolic forces arise to blot out everything good which Christian civilization has wrought, denouncing it without distinction as wretched racism and imperialism. Lost in the finger-pointing is the abominable historical record of many of the nations that never knew Jesus or the New Testament, in which are now being valorized as the better model of government and social order. This delusion leads humanity further from the gospel and deeper into the pit of crime where another supremacy, this one demonic, is transformed into humanity's ideal. Let us explore that ideal further, again, in the ancient Pacific Northwest and what is now the U.S. and Canada, as narrated by Graber and Wengro, and we quote, The ultimate causes of Native American slavery didn't lie in environmental or demographic conditions, but in Northwest Coast concepts of the proper ordering of society and these, in turn, were the result of political jockeying by different sectors of the population, who, as everywhere, had somewhat different perspectives on what a proper society should be. The simple reality is that there was no shortage of working hands in Northwest Coast households, but a good proportion of those hands belonged to aristocratic title holders who felt strongly that they should be exempted from menial work. They might hunt manatees or killer whales, but it was inconceivable for them to be seen building huts or gutting fish. First-hand accounts show this often became an issue in the spring and summer, when the only limits on fish harvesting were the number of hands available to process and preserve the catch. Rules of decorum prevented Indian nobles from joining in, while low-ranking native commoners would instantly defect to a rival household if pressed too hard or called upon too often. In other words, aristocrats probably did feel that commoners should be working like slaves for them, but commoners had other opinions. The result, from the noble's point of view, was a perennial shortage, not of labor as such, but of controllable labor at key times of the year. This was the problem to which native slavery addressed itself, and such were the immediate causes which made harvesting people from neighboring clans no less essential to the aboriginal economy of the northwest coast than constructing huts, clam gardens, or terraced root plots. We should note that in any true northwest coast indigenous settlement, Hereditary slaves might have constituted up to a quarter of the population. These figures are striking. As we noted earlier, they rival the demographic balance in the colonial south at the height of the cotton boom. Slavery became commonplace on the northwest coast largely because an ambitious aristocracy found itself unable to reduce its free subjects to a dependable workforce. The ensuing violence seems to have spread until those in what we've been calling the Shatter Zone of Northern California gradually found themselves obliged to create institutions capable of insulating them from it, or at least its worst extremes. End quote from pages 197 through 199 and 207. The corollary to the erasure of the history of American Indians enslaving one another before Columbus is the erasure of the fact of white Christians enslaving one another. In the June 23rd issue of the London Review of Books, House Organ of Intellectuals whose area of specialty is history and literature, Princeton University professor Farah Dabhawa penned a review of Simon Newman's book, Freedom Seekers, Escaping Slavery and Restoration, London. His review drips with unqualified contempt for the white people of England from 1580 to 1830. He writes about black people in the Britain of that era, repeating the current fad, which claims that Britain was packed with black slaves and unfree Asians and Arabs from coast to coast. Part of his essay is unintentionally amusing in support of his thesis of a high number of blacks in bondage in London, he quotes Imatez Habib's Black Lives in the English Archives, which he says uncovered hundreds of men and women of color working alongside and marrying white Londoners between 1500 and 1677, quote. It looks as though Professor Dabwalla didn't bother to do the math, assuming that the hundreds working and marrying are at the high end, let's say 999, That's less than seven colored persons entering London for each of the 177 years in the period cited, not exactly a deluge. D'Aboile's writing also lacks any context. He's oblivious to the cruelty and misery inflicted on poor whites and white slaves in England. He writes of a black servant whipped by his white English master for lying and pilfering. He states, for such transgressions, a white servant would simply have been let go. A bigot like this scholar is sadly ignorant of elementary facts. For instance, having purloined one spoon, Jeremy Bentham had his elderly English butler hanged. In our Revisionist History Newsletter, issue number 118, page 6, we documented the case of a young Irish mother hanged for pilfering cloth from a dressmaker's shop in London. These heartless and grotesque injustices were the norm, not the exception. Poor whites in pre-modern Britain were less than zero, regarded as beneath exotic black people, Arabs and Asians. In an attempt to reduce the surplus population of the potentially revolutionary English working class, the Waltham Black Act of 1723 turned various misdemeanors into felonies so that British paupers could either be hanged or enslaved for stealing lace or poaching deer on an aristocrat's estate. You can read more about that in my book, They Were White and They Were Slaves, The Untold History of the Enslavement of Whites in Early America. It's available from our website, revisionisthistory.org. Professor Dabwala poses what is supposed to be a question inducing feelings of guilt in white readers, quote, what was it like to be a young enslaved black person kidnapped and trafficked to London at the end of the 17th century and held captive among strangers, thousands of miles from home. To which we reply, Sir, consult the letters and diaries of young enslaved white persons. They were kid-nabbed, kidnapped in the hundreds of thousands from the streets of London and a dozen other coastal cities in England and Scotland and sold as white slaves thousands of miles from home in the West Indies and British America in the 17th century. But the Princeton professor is oblivious. He compounds his historical illiteracy further by stating, quote, Most strikingly, before the 18th century, absconded black and brown Londoners were sometimes described in print as servants, but never as slaves, even when they had manacles around their throats, end quote. Well, if the test of one's enslaved condition is whether one has a manacle around one's throat, then the status of poor whites sentenced under the Waltham Black Act to so-called transportation, which was a euphemism for enslavement in America and later Australia, they were manacled head to foot. And if that's the case, then certainly they were slaves, though their situation is almost always dressed up by the media and academia in cosmetic euphemisms like servant and convict dabwala's writing drips with disgust for english whites he states quote the engraved collars with which with which rich londoners fettered their black attendants were identical to those used for pet dogs and this he further states during the glorious revolution of 1688 the savior of english liberty william of orange was grandly attended by 200 blacks brought from plantations in America, dressed in plumed livery, and made to work as grooms, End quote. Well, the professor either doesn't know or doesn't particularly care that in 1688, the white child slaves of England were performing forced labor, climbing inside chimneys and digging half-naked in stiflingly hot, dangerous mines. In those underground tunnels, the little tykes dwelled in near-perpetual darkness, entering before dawn and departing in many cases after sunset. They would have gladly exchanged their lot for that of grooms in plumed livery. English churchyards record the deaths of white children as young as six in collapsed chimneys and flooded or tunneled mines." Accusing white grandees like the diarist Samuel Pepys of erasing the victims of black slavery, Dabwala does just that to the white slavery he refuses to see. It is not our intention to defend the Masonic English ruling class. Much of the enslavement they unjustly inflicted on people of color they first perfected in subjugating the lower classes of their own kind. As far as we are concerned, Dabwalla can excoriate the aristocracy and predatory capitalists to his heart's content. As long as his accusations are documented, we have no objections. But what is a grave disservice to his readers, however, is the fact that in his racist contempt for whites in general, he renders invisible the miseries of the English poor and unfree and working classes. There has been a surfeit of television programs and movies lately with black people portrayed as members of the middle and upper classes in Regency and Victorian England. D'Aboile does nothing to challenge these ridiculous depictions. More than 100 years later, Great Britain in 1939 on the eve of World War II was a sea of blonde and blue-eyed English folk. There is no evidence of any sizable mulatto population that would have been in existence if the recent BBC dramas were anything other than the pathetic, wishful thinking of white liberals. Mr. Dabwalla is aware that the comparatively few black people resident in England in the 18th and 19th centuries were there mostly as status symbols for the affluent and objects of curiosity. He admits that among the aristocracy and gentry it had been fashionable to be waited on by dark-skinned boys and girls. Pepys noted in passing that his patron, Lord Sandwich, had acquired a little Turk and a Negro who were made to work as pages for the Earl's Daughters, end quote. Professor Dabwala is one of a pack of privileged writers consumed by hatred who are engaged in relentless branding of Caucasian people as Earth's prime bigots and brigands, exceeding all the races in cruelty, indeed the most savage progenitors of racism and deviltry on Earth. Malicious dribble like this, which passes for oracular Ivy League illumination, has plausibility as a result of the failure to teach the history of oppressed whites, while removing all traces of the unimaginable brutality which so-called native tribes, such as the Aztecs, perpetrated before any white man could be scapegoated for it. Male nobility among the Aztecs seemed to have viewed life as an eternal contest or even conquest there seems to have been a capturing society, not unlike some of the other more recent Amerindian societies, but on an infinitely greater scale. The rape and enslavement of conquered women were among the primary grievances reported to Hernando Cortez and his men by Aztec subjects in Veracruz, who, by 1519, were willing to take their chances with the band of unknown Spanish freebooters. In China, 1500 BC, under the Shang dynasty, like the Aztecs, the Shang rulers waged war to acquire stocks of living human victims for sacrifices. Enemies taken in war by the Aztecs were kept nurtured to ensure their vitality, but then finally killed by ritual torture specialists to repay a primordial debt of life to the gods. At Tenochtitlan's Templo Mayor, the result was a veritable industry of bloodletting, which some Spanish observers took as clear proof that the Aztec ruling classes were in league with Satan. This bloodletting is how the Aztecs attempted to impress their neighbors, and it is still how they impress themselves on the human imagination today. The image of thousands of prisoners waiting in line to have their hearts torn out by masked God impersonators is admittedly difficult to get out of one's head. Well, God seemed to have used the Spanish to to put a halt to the Aztec's satanic bloodletting. Starting with Alfred Crosby and Jared Diamond, they have repeatedly pointed out that the conquistadors had something akin to manifest destiny on their side and a Bronze Age legacy of metal weapons, guns, and horses to shock and awe the natives advanced metallurgy, animal-powered vehicles, alphabetic writing systems, and a certain penchant for free thinking. After the Aztecs, another favored nation regarded by academics and the corporate media as infinitely superior to the West are the Incas of South America who evince the pre-Columbian penchant for savage despotism by their divine king who was known as Sapa Inca, and the worship of him and elite human beings in his court. From the capital at Cuzco, Graeber and Wengro tell us in their book, The Dawn of Everything, Inca of royal blood exercised periodic mita, a rotating labor tribute or corví from some millions of subjects distributed across the western littoral of South America from Quito to Santiago. The Inca had achieved universal monarchy their sovereign was himself the incarnate son, all authority derived from a single point of radiance, the person of Sapa Inca, himself cascading downwards, the living king, a god. Cosmic claims are regularly made about him in royal rituals, though totalitarian impulse lies behind all such claims. As with the Aztecs, consolidation of the Inca's empire seems to involve a great deal of sexual violence. In those parts of the Andes where people were divided by social rank, women were expected to marry into families of higher status than their own. In so doing, the bride's lineage was said to be conquered by the grooms. In each newly conquered territory, the Inca immediately built a temple and forced a quota of local virgins to become brides of the sun, women cut off from their families, kept either as permanent virgins or dedicated to the Sapa Inca, for him to exploit and dispose of as he pleased. In consequence, the king's subjects, male and female, could be referred to collectively as conquered women. Another civilization honored as superior to that of the West is the Olmec, O-L-M-E-C. The Olmec heartland was located in the marshlands of Veracruz in the swamp cities of San Lorenzo and La Venta on the fringe of Mexico's Gulf Coast. Olmec art from 1500 to 1000 BC, including figurines and stone sculpture, which proliferated across an enormous area straddling the isthmus of Tehuantepec and including Guatemala, Honduras, and much of Southern Mexico. Slavery was indispensable to the Olmec economy. The structure of Olmec society was in no sense egalitarian. There were clearly marked elites. The pyramids and other monuments suggest that at least at certain times of the year, these elites had extraordinary resources of skill and labor at their disposal. In other words, constricted slave labor. These societies were immersed in the dark rites of the occult. Was it somehow ordained by His Satanic Majesty that a solid or hollow sphere, we can call it a ball, should always be soaring in the air on planet Earth? In the past, certain ball games involved ritual murder. It was not an accident that the Freemasons of the French Revolution swore their allegiance to the overthrow of the Bourbon king in a room set aside for ball playing. This was the famous Oath of the Tennis Court, whose use has been dismissed as trivia or an accident of history. What cannot be denied, however, is that the Olmec, no less than the Maya and Aztec, put tremendous emphasis on their own ball games. Any further assessment of Olmec political structure has to reckon with what many consider a signature achievement, a series of absolutely colossal sculpted heads, these remarkable objects are freestanding carved from tons of basalt and of a quality comparable with the finest ancient Egyptian stonework. Each must have taken untold hours of grinding to produce. These sculptures appear to be representations of Olmec leaders, but intriguingly, they are depicted wearing the leather helmets of ball players. We don't know what kind of game was played. If they were anything like later Maya and Aztec ball games, it likely took place in a long and narrow court with two teams from high-ranking families competing by striking a heavy rubber ball with their hips and buttocks. Looking a bit closer at later Mesoamerican ball games might at least give us a sense of how this worked in practice. Stone ball courts were common features of classic Maya cities, Alongside royal residences and pyramid temples. Some were purely ceremonial. The chief Maya gods were themselves ball players. In the Kik Maya epic Popo Va, a ball game provides the setting in which humans and underworld gods collide. The greatest known Maya epic, the Popo Va, centers on a ball game an inscribed staircase built at Yaxilin to mark the accession in A.D. 752 of what was probably their most famous king, Nord, known as Bird Jaguar the Great. On the central block, he appears as a ball player. Flanked by two dwarf attendants, the king prepares to strike a huge rubber ball containing the body of a human captive. Inside the rubber ball was the body of a human captive bound Broken and bundled as it tumbles down a flight of stairs. Capturing high ranking enemies to be killed at ball games was a major objective. End quote from Graeber and Wengro, pages 384 to 385. In Aztec versions of the ball game played at Tejaclan, players confronted each other amid racks of human skulls. Has this hallowed practice of some of the native nations of the Western Hemisphere survived? And if so, in what specific form? Is the time spent by modern spectators at the various stadium and and coliseum games which mesmerize Americans, baseball, football, and basketball, and in Europe, uh, soccer? Is this a kind of offering to the god of wasted time? We are, by the way, in favor of athletics and athletic contests, particularly at the local level, and without the trappings of fanatic obsession bordering on worship that is exhibited at the college and professional levels. We know from our own investigative work that the ancient pagan tree of tatters, which held the shredded clothing of victims of human sacrifice, is present in modern times. We saw it in the ritual murder of a little girl in a case we investigated when we were reporting for the establishment media in upstate New York the death of Carmen Cologne in Rochester to New York. To what degree, if any, is the deadly Olmec, Aztec- Mayan ball game still in play? Washington, Jefferson, and Madison are portrayed as fiends because in their fledgling efforts to lay the groundwork for a nation founded on individual freedom and limited government, they did not perfect their work by initially including all peoples in their experiment and liberty. What is discounted is the tremendous battle they wage to successfully construct that groundwork from which future generations of all races, colors, and creeds could benefit enormously. It is from ill will and bad faith that in our time, journalists, professors, and government officials deny the unparalleled goodness of the Founders' Framework. By comparison, in pre-Columbian societies, 1000 B.C. or older, native empires that were built on controlling humanity through the perfection of occult mechanisms, such as the manufacture and display of images, beginning circa 1000 B.C. at Chavon du Hontar and the northern highlands of Peru, occult iconography was widespread. The images at Chauvin from thousands of years ago induced a psychological state similar to the one in which Americans are undergoing in our time in the alchemical theater in which almost all who access the movie, TV, and online media eventually have the status of initiates. The images erected at Chauvin were not for the uninitiated, crested eagles curling on themselves, vanishing into a maze of ornament, Human faces grow snake-like fangs or contort into a feline grimace. Some of these images are described by scholars as monsters, but as we are in another kind of visual universe altogether, it is the realm of the shape-shifter where nobody is ever quite stable or complete, and diligent mental training is required to tease out structure from what at first seems to be visual mayhem. In other words... Chaos culture. Sound familiar? Up until recent times, a great many indigenous societies were still using systems of broadly similar kinds to transmit esoteric knowledge of ritual formulae, or records of shamanic journeys to the worlds of phonic spirits and animal familiars. In Chavon's monumental landscape, almost everything seems to have something to do with ritual performance and the revelation of concealment of ritual knowledge of supernatural danger and of the speech of stones." So says Graeber and Wingro in their book, The Dawn of Everything, pages 388 to 389. Almost everything seems to have had something to do with ritual performance, they mentioned. Think of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, the September 11th terror attack in 2001, the 2012 Batman movie theater killings, and the 2017 Las Vegas massacre, the 2018 Parkland and 2022 Uvalde school slaughters and the 2019 Cielo Vista Mall shootings linked to the Cielo Drive murders of Sharon Tate and her companions, and many more of the same alien weirdness based on techniques imported from Egypt, Babylon, and the indigenous natives of the Western Hemisphere whose pagan perfection of the dark arts were rebirthed by the Western occult to dislocate us psychologically and spiritually, as we detailed in our book, Twilight Language, which is available from our website, revisionisthistory.org. The title of the book, Twilight Language. Its precursor, published in 2001, is Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. The current levels of growing public psychosis, the civic magic which has emerged openly, these were foretold in secret societies and psychological warfare, and now their perfection has been brought to the fore in our book, Twilight Language. Quoting now, the ancient Chavon Peruvian visual program seems to resemble what Clifford Gertz in 1980 termed in reference to Bali, a theater state which we surmise was organized for the purpose of staging spectacular rituals that almost invariably involve an explosion of apparently random violence that disorganize the ritual life of ordinary households in a way that somehow can never be put back how it was. As in the US in 2022, in the Chauvin pagan nation of ancient Peru, apparently random violence was deliberately staged to psychologically break down and disorient the people. Once again, I ask you, does this sound familiar from today's headlines? The temples at Chauvin contain stone labyrinths and hanging staircases. They imply torturous journeys ending at narrow corridors, large enough for only a single person, beyond which lies a tiny sanctum containing a monolith carved with dense tangles of images. The most famous such monument, a stella called El Lanzón, the Lance, is a shaft of granite over 13 feet tall around which the old temple of Chavin was constructed. A well-lit replica of the stella has pride of place in Peru's Museo de la Nacion, but the 3,000-year-old original still resides at the heart of a darkened maze illuminated by thin slats where no single viewer could ever grasp the totality of its form or meaning. If Chavon, a remote precursor to the Inca, was an empire, it was one built on images linked to esoteric knowledge. And quote from pages 389 to 390. So those societies were ruled by what would appear to be a kind of satanic genius, and they evinced this theatrical monumentalism, whether in the form of a granite monolith or a pyramid. They lent the illusion that sacred space would be forever occupied by the imperishable ruling system whose reign was inevitable and never-ending. Monuments, like the Egyptian pyramids, make a certain kind of power seem eternal, the kind that only really manifested itself in those particular months when pyramid construction was underway. Inscriptions or objects designed to project an image of cosmic power, palaces, mausoleums, lavish stelae, with godlike figures announcing laws or boasting of their conquests, are precisely the ones most likely to endure thereby forming the core of the world's major heritage sites and museum collections today. Such is their power that even now we risk falling under their spell. That's from page 430 of the Dawn of Everything. These Thonic systems of control, that's C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C, these Thonic systems of control, harness the minds of millions across millennia. All tyrannies, whether dominated by kings or communists, whether led by Joe Stalin or Joe Biden, perpetuate a cosmological narcissism which renders them above humanity. As such, they are above the law, they are prone to arbitrary bloodletting and money manipulation, and they are boastful of their supposed divinity. No law applies to them, except the command ideology of Rabelais' Abbey of Thelema, in which the divine king has as his axiom, fais ce que tu voudras. Do what you will, do whatever you want. Let us turn now to the 18th century in Louisiana at Natchez, which is now actually Mississippi and not Louisiana, we look at the work of a French Jesuit, Father Montouron La who gave an account of the Natchez in the early 18th century. La Petite found the Natchez to be nothing like the people Jesuits had encountered in what is now Canada. He was especially struck by their religious practices. These revolved around the settlement All the French sources referred to as the Great Village, which centered on two great earthen platforms separated by a plaza. On one platform was a temple and on the other, a kind of palace, the house of a ruler called, as we have noted, the Great Sun. The platform was large enough to contain up to 4,000 people, roughly the size of the entire Natchez population at the time. The temple in which an eternal fire burned was dedicated to the founder of the royal dynasty. The current ruler, together with his brother, called the Tattooed Serpent, and eldest sister, known as the White Woman, were for their own parts treated with something that seemed very much like worship. Anyone who came into their presence was expected to bow and wail and to retreat backwards. No one, not even the king's wives, was allowed to share a meal with him. Only the most privileged could even see him eat. What this meant in practice was that members of the royal family lived out their lives largely within the confines of the great village itself, rarely venturing beyond. The king himself emerged mainly during major rituals or times of war. The Natchez great son, his sheer personal power, French observers were particularly struck by the arbitrary executions of Natchez subjects, the property confiscations, and the way in which at royal funerals, court retainers could and would often apparently quite willingly offer themselves up to be strangled to accompany the great son and his closest family members in death. Those sacrificed on such occasions consisted largely of people who were up to that point immediately responsible for the king's care and his physical needs, including his wives, who were invariably commoners, The Natchez were matrilineal, so it was the white woman's children that succeeded to the throne. And when we say white woman, that is not a racial characteristic. We are referring here to indigenous American pre-Columbian people. Many, according to French accounts, went to their deaths voluntarily, even joyfully. One wife remarked how she dreamed of finally being able to share a meal with her husband in another world. The great son was a sovereign in the classical sense of the term, which is to say he embodied a principle that was seen as higher than the law. Therefore, no law applied to him. This is a very common bit of cosmological reasoning. Divine kings cannot be judged in human terms. Behaving in arbitrarily violent ways to anyone around them is itself proof of their transcendent status. End quote from Graeber and Wengroh, pages 392 to 393. The concept of a human being having the exalted status of the Great Son, who is deserving of worship, was the scourge of many nations that had not Jesus Christ. After the Medes and Persians defeated the Assyrians at the Battle of Nineveh in 612 BC, they began to patter themselves after the vanquished Assyrians with regard to the divine status of their monarch. Ashurbanipal, the last king of Assyria, had ordered that he be adored as the king of the universe. The Persian model of the despot deserving of worship was in turn emulated by the Sassanians and the Parthians, and of course throughout the Orient. The West, beginning with Greece, was first blessed with intimations, however faint, of the power of rulers limited by the polis, P-O-L-I-S, that is the citizenry as a whole, and in the Christian model, in humble, ordered subjection to the Creator, culminating in the American patriots' world-shaking, revolutionary cry against the ruinous divine right of George III, we will have no king but Jesus. We do not associate as satanic everything about these mysterious people, whoever they were, American Indians may have arrived later, the people who inhabited America centuries before 1492, very enigmatic people. Some of these peoples may have pursued a natural law course. For certain in what is now Eastern Missouri, Illinois, and Central Ohio, these enigmatic ones who inhabited the American Midwest circa 1000 BC to 1350 AD were extraordinary engineers and astronomers. Giving credit where it is due, we admire their brilliance while simultaneously tracking the bloody horrors that almost always mark these alleged pre-white utopias of America before Columbus. We qualify the assertion as alleged in that the natives of medieval America could have been conceivably, possibly Caucasian. It's a question for another day, but in the meantime readers may wish to consult Pierre Honoré's controversial 1961 classic Ich fand den Gott, translated into English and published by Putnam's in 1964 as In Search of the White God, the Mysterious Heritage of Central and South American Civilization. Graeber and Wingrove provide an account of the awesome resplendence and high strangeness of this area of pre-Columbian American history about which we know comparatively little, as 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 well as its terrible denouement, Let's now turn our focus to Cahokia, Illinois. Quote, From roughly A.D. 1050 to 1350, there was in what's now East St. Louis, a few miles west of Illinois, a city whose real name has been forgotten, but which is known to history as Cahokia. It appears to have been the capital, rising magnificently and seemingly from nowhere around the time that the Song Dynasty ruled in China and the Abbasid Caliphate in Iraq. Cahokia's population peaked at something in the order of 15,000 people, then it abruptly dissolved. For centuries after its demise, the site where the city once stood and hundreds of miles of river valleys around it lay entirely devoid of human habitation, a vacant quarter, a place of ruins. Successor kingdoms to Cahokia sprang up to the south, but then likewise crumbled. By the time Europeans arrived on the eastern seaboard of North America, Mississippian civilization, as it had come to be known, was but a distant memory. Cahokia was soon to become the greatest city in the Americas north of Mexico. Cahokia lies in an extensive floodplain along the Mississippi known as the American Bottom. It was a bounteous and fertile environment, ideal for growing maize, that is, corn, but still a challenging place to build a city since much of it was swampland, foggy, and full of shallow pools. Charles Dickens, who once visited this place, described it as an unbroken slough of black water and mud. In Mississippian cosmology, watery places like this were connected to the chaotic underworld seen as the diametrical opposite of a precise, predictable, celestial order. And it is no doubt significant that some of the first large-scale construction at Cahokia centered on a processional walkway known as the Rattlesnake Causeway, designed to rise from the surrounding waters and leading towards the surrounding ridgetop tombs, or Path of Souls, Way of the Dead. We are not sure exactly, say, uh, Wingro and Graber. How it happened, as an act of religious revelation perhaps, but around A.D. 1050, Cahokia exploded in size, growing from a fairly modest community to a city over six square miles, including more than 100 earthen mounds built around spacious plazas. Imagine, its original population of a few thousand was augmented by perhaps 10,000 more coming from outside to settle in Cahokia and its satellite towns, totaling something in the order of 40,000 in the American bottom as a whole. The main part of the city was designed and built according to a master plan and a single burst of activity. Its focus was a huge packed earth pyramid known today as Monk's Mound, standing before an enormous plaza. In a similar plaza to the west stood a woodhenge of cypress posts marking out the sun's annual course. Some of Cahokia's pyramids were topped with palaces or temples, others with charnel houses or sweat lodges. A calculated effort was made to resettle the former populations, or at least their most important influential representatives, in newly designed thatch huts, arranged in neighborhoods around smaller plazas and earthen pyramids. From the summit of Monk's Mound, the city's ruling elite enjoyed powers of surveillance over these planned residential zones. For those who fell within its orbit, there was nothing much left between domestic life lived under constant surveillance from above and the awesome spectacle of the city itself. That spectacle could be terrifying. Along with games and feasts, in the early decades of Cahokia's expansion, there were mass executions and burials carried out in public. As with fledgling kingdoms in other parts of the world, these large-scale killings were directly associated with the funerary rites of nobility. In this case, a mortuary facility centered on the paired burials of high-status male and females whose shrouded bodies were placed around the surface, built up from some thousands of shell beads. Around them, an earthen mound was formed precisely oriented to an azimuth derived from the southernmost rising point of the moon. Its contents including four mass graves, holded the stacked bodies of mainly young women, though one was over 50 who were killed specifically for the occasion. Birdman symbolism was especially marked in the smaller kingdoms, some 50 in all, that began to appear up and down the Mississippi. The rulers of these towns were often buried when seemed to be precious badges and insignia manufactured at Cahokia. Sacred images in Cahokia itself focused on the figure of the corn mother, who also appears as the old woman, a goddess holding a loom. (laughs) During the 11th and 12th centuries AD, Mississippian sites with links to various kinds, to Cahokia, appear everywhere from Virginia to Minnesota, often in aggressive conflict with their neighbors. Trade routes spanning the continent were activated, the new materials for new treasures pouring into the American bottom. Things began to grow increasingly violent fairly fast. Within a century of the initial urban explosion at Cahokia, in about A.D. 1150, a giant palisaded wall was built, though it only included some parts of the city and not others. This marked the beginning of a long and uneven process of war, destruction, and depleted population hundreds of years before Columbus set foot in America. At first, people seem to have fled the metropolis for the hinterlands, then ultimately abandoning the rural bottomlands entirely. The same process can be observed in many of the smaller Mississippian towns. Whatever happened in Cahokia, it appears to have left extremely unpleasant memories. Along with much of its Birdman mythology, the place was erased from any later oral traditions. After AD 1400, the entire fertile expanse of the American bottom, along with the territory from Cahokia up to the Ohio River, became what's referred to in the literature as the vacant or empty quarter, a haunted wilderness of overgrown pyramids and housing blocks crumbling back into swamp, occasionally traversed by hunters but devoid of permanent human settlement. Around the early 18th century, the kingdoms that had been in the practice of building mounds and pyramids had almost entirely vanished from the American South and Midwest. And their mysterious, enigmatic builders, whose race we do not know, vanished with them. The violence and misery were so intense that these areas were, had the status of accursed territory for centuries. And this legacy of violence, horrendous violence, spilled over into the area of post-Columbian America. For example, the appalling killing, torture, and slavery practiced by the Iroquois and Huron tribes did not simply spring out of thin air. Those Native Americans didn't suddenly decide to adopt barbaric customs only after the white man entered their environs. In certain ways, the Wendat, an Iroquois-speaking Huron tribe, also spelled Wyandot, and Iroquoian societies in general around that time, the age of the Kandarunk, which is 1649 to 1701, named after the leader of the Huron Confederacy in the 17th century, those tribes were extraordinarily warlike. There appears to have been bloody rivalries fought out in many northern parts of the eastern woodlands before European settlers began supplying indigenous factions with muskets, and these resulted in the Beaver Wars. The early Jesuits were often appalled by what they saw. For a male warrior taken prisoner by the Iroquois, the only alternative to full adoption into Iroquois society was excruciating death by torture. Jesuits found the details shocking. What they observed, sometimes at first hand, was a slow, public, and highly theatrical use of violence. What seems to have really appalled them, however, was not so much the whipping, boiling, branding, cutting up, even in some cases cooking and eating of the enemy, so much as the fact that almost everyone in an Iroquois village or town took part, even women and children. And the suffering of the prisoner might go on for days with the victim periodically resuscitated only to endure further ordeals, and it was very much a communal affair. End quote from the book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, page 511. The tactic of portraying virtually every facet of Western society, culture, art, music, philosophy, religion, and statecraft as a monstrous, blood-drenched, genocidal, cosmic crime spree without precedent depends on the targets of this systematic attack being kept ignorant of the infernal history that we have recounted here today of the monstrous blood-drenched genocidal empires and kingdoms that comprise the third world before their encounter with white populations. These horrors are perpetrated in many non-Western nations unto the present time with centuries old pagan antecedents. Censorship and mind control are tools of metaphysical combat, aimed at crushing the human spirit of all people, of all races. And that which has been suppressed has a tremendous power to curse our souls if we allow the process of suppression to occur. And how do we change it? By ending cancel culture by allowing the free circulation of ideas, by permitting the promise of the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, of the right to a free press, and the right to be wrong, which is the point that is missed in so many of the arguments about hate speech and freedom of speech, the concept that was brought to the fore during the Christian Enlightenment. Yes, there was a secular Enlightenment. There's also a Christian Enlightenment. I went into that in my introduction to Johann Andreas Eisenmenger's The Traditions of the Jews. Our publishing house published the English language excerpts from that by a Huguenot scientist, Stellen, who was a member of the Royal Society in England. He was a member of the Huguenot Diaspora in England and he translated portions of Johann Andreas Eisenmenger's Endectus Judentum, and he translated it as the traditions of the Jews, although I believe in German the literal translation would be Judaism discovered. But we, we go in to some considerable length, I think, into the existence of the Christian Enlightenment, and Eisenmenger was one of the pioneers of that. But as we proceed into the Jeffersonian era of the early American Republic, what's often missed is the fundamental concept fought for by the American patriots of error having rights. And because the question was, who determines what is truth? And they had been very fearful of the old world where people had been slaughtered in Western societies over the concept that the protestants were inherently wrong or the concept that the catholics were indisputably wrong and therefore catholic error or protestant error or judaic error or muslim error had to be violently suppressed had to be that if someone was publishing a muslim or a judaic or a a Protestant or Catholic book, and one of the rival factions objected to it, then it was correct and right and legal to suppress that expression, that literature, that press. And that changed with the American Revolution. Error has rights. That was the fundamental theme. And that's what's missing now. It's, if we recall the history of the intellectual history of the West, then we understand that so many times ideas that were condemned as absurd and ridiculous and wrong and dangerous later on proved to be absolutely correct, beneficial, and salubrious. Therefore, error has rights because we don't know everything. And if we have a certain humility, then we will understand that the notion that there is an expert opinion to which we must all genuflect is at the root of tyranny. And so I thank you today, both to the podcasting systems that allow us to speak freely, as well as for your re- support. We do need your donations to continue. Our mailing address is Independent History and Research, Box 849, Coeur Idaho, 83816. And we're at revisionisthistory.org, that's our website. We're also on Twitter and we have a blog And of course, we've published 10 history books, 122 newsletters, numerous magazine and newspaper articles, and many talks and broadcasts like this. They will all be found at revisionisthistory.org. I'm Michael Hoffman. This is Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. Thank you for joining me today.